You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning. Uh, my name is Alex Scott, and uh, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. I serve here as the executive pastor, and uh, we are excited to continue in our series that Pastor Dean started last week called My Easter Story, where we're looking at different uh, post-resurrection accounts of folks in the gospel, uh, the gospels uh, throughout the, the scriptures. And so uh, last Sunday, Dean preached through the story of the guards. And I'd encourage you to, to listen to that on our podcast or online if you missed that last week so you can uh, kind of have some context for how we're working through uh, this series. But this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the Easter story of one of Jesus' disciples, uh, and that's the story of Thomas. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I would encourage you to uh, open up to the book of John, chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 24 in just a minute. But as you turn there, uh, I wanted to take a quick second and acknowledge anybody, uh, any college students who might be in the room who graduated this weekend. I know it was TCC, Florida State, FAMU graduation. So would you all stand up real quick? Just We just want to encourage you. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thank you all so much. We, we wanted to encourage you, and uh, we also wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your commitment to the local church while you were uh, here in Tallahassee. Uh, as you search for jobs, or you head to jobs, or you search and think about graduate schools, or whatever the Lord may have for you next, uh, I just want to charge you, wherever you go, plug your life into the local church. Live on mission for Jesus. Use your vocation to glorify the Lord uh, wherever he may take you, and we're grateful for you. All right, let's dive into the text this morning. We'll be in John chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 24. The words will be on the screen as well, uh, and you can follow along there if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you. John writes, but Thomas, called twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, Put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us through your word. So Father, as I prepare to teach, and Lord, as we prepare all to sit under your word, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. Father, that you would give us wisdom to see the, the gospel in these passages. Lord, I thank you for the churches around this city and around the world who are proclaiming that same truth this morning. Pray that you would be with them. We pray that you would keep the enemy out of those churches, out of this church, And Father, that we would glorify you with the way that we live our lives. 
Thank you for the folks who stood up this morning, who graduated. We thank you for their lives and their education and their commitment to uh, this local church. While they were in Tallahassee, we pray that you would bless them as they go out to uh, any next steps ahead of them. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we work through this story and this text, it's, I think it's helpful to get our bearings on what has happened just prior to this scene that we just read. So in John 19, Jesus has been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been crucified, he's, he's put to death, and his body is placed into the tomb. And on Sunday, a couple days after that, Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb. She sees that the stone is removed from the entrance of the tomb. It's empty, and she returns to some of the disciples to tell them about it. They turn around, they run to the tomb, they see it's empty, they don't quite understand what's going on, and they return to where they were staying. And so as Peter and John leave, Jesus appears to Mary, and we're gonna talk more about that interaction in a couple weeks. Um, But later that night, 10 of the disciples, all but Judas and Thomas, are gathered together, they're locked in a room, and three days earlier, they saw Jesus crucified, right? They're obviously his followers, they feared for their lives because of what the Jews had, uh, had done to Jesus, and so they're concerned. They're huddled together in a locked room, and Jesus shows up. Uh, we don't know, like, if he went through a wall, if he unlocked the door, he just shows up. And uh, most of the, the disciples probably at that point are freaking out, and Jesus just says, peace be with you. Okay, and then he shows them his wounds, he commissions them as apostles, he gives them the Holy Spirit, he tells them that by, by proclaiming the message of the gospel that that is how they can see people uh, have their sins forgiven, uh, and the disciples rejoice at the sight of the risen Lord. And this is the context in which we pick up our text today. So let's look again at verse 24. John writes, but Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Okay, so Jesus shows up, he commissions the disciples, and Thomas isn't there. We're not really sure where he is, where he's gone, we just know he's not with them in this moment. And if you think that you have FOMO, well, looking at your you know, friend's Instagram when they're on vacation, like I, I'm guessing it doesn't compare to the way that Thomas is feeling in this moment. Thomas returns, and the disciples are telling him about their encounter with the risen Savior. They want Thomas to believe that Jesus is alive, that they have seen him with their eyes, and this is where Thomas gets kind of one of those iconic nicknames in the Bible that you probably don't really want, and if you've heard this passage uh, taught before, you may be familiar with it. This is where we get the idea of being a doubting Thomas, and while I want to give Thomas the benefit of the doubt in this moment and not be too harsh to him, it's not healthy doubt or honest skepticism that we see from Thomas in this moment. And I get it, right? Thomas has been through it. What do you think he's feeling in that moment? What do you think you would be feeling in that moment? The leader that you have followed and given the last three years of your life to was killed for a crime he didn't commit. Thomas was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus when Judas, one of his friends and disciples, betrays him. Right? He's been through it. Thomas doesn't understand how to make sense of what has happened over the last few days. But Thomas, in this moment, he doesn't respond in doubt. He responds in unbelief. Look again at the second half of verse 25. It says, but he, meaning Thomas, said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
As I was preparing this week and thinking about this text, I was reminded of a story that I think helps paint the picture of this type of unbelief. Uh, My wife, Melissa, and I had the opportunity to foster a little boy who I'm going to call JB as I tell this story. And uh, JB was about four and a half years old when he came to to live with us. And one of the things that we would do, because he had a lot of energy, uh, was use our neighbor's pool and go swimming. There's only one problem with that is JB didn't know how to swim, okay? So we're first-time parents. We're like, this is easy. They make life jackets. This will solve all of our problems. Wrong, okay? Uh, He didn't want to, even with a life jacket, he didn't want to swim because he didn't believe that it would allow him to float. So we, even as we would go, we would spend a lot of time at the stairs, maybe on a pool float, something like that, but John would never believe that he would float. So one day uh, on vacation, I'm trying to convince him uh, to try, you know, just, hey, try floating with the life jacket. Just try. And every time I try to push him away from me, he grips me harder. If I try and peel his hands off of me, he's gripping me even harder. And I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. You're not going to float. So some, at some point, I end up letting him go. He's floating in the, in the deep end, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. And I'm in the back of a, I'm in a pool in the backyard of an Airbnb in Panama City, worried that the you know, neighbors are going to call 911, and I'm trying to yell louder than he is, no, you're floating, no, you're floating. And uh, th- here's the reality. He was floating. He didn't drown, and swimming got a lot more fun after that, but that's not the point of this story. The point is that JB was so gripped by doubt and by fear and in previous circumstances that he did not believe the words that I was telling him. And this is what's happening to Thomas in this moment. If you look at Matthew 16, Jesus in this passage has warned the disciples of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He asks the disciples later, he says, who do the people say that that I am? Who do they say that Jesus is? And the disciples answer, they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some a prophet. And then he turns it around to the disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with one of the strongest confessions that we see in the scriptures. And he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus on that confession says, this is the confession on which I will build my church. And in verse 21, we read, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes be killed, and be raised the third day. At least three times throughout the Gospels, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples, and he predicts that he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is like the original Babe Ruth, right? He's been calling his shot the whole time. But Thomas, in this moment, is like JB with a life jacket. Regardless of what people who love, uh, or people who love him say to him, regardless of what Jesus has predicted, he will not believe. How many of us have been like Thomas in this moment? We know what the Father has said. We know what Jesus has spoken to us, but we are unwilling to hear him. We're unwilling to believe what he said. Is there somewhere right now in your life that you're refusing to listen to God? It's clear that he's spoken and you're refusing to listen. The second part of this is it's not just Thomas's unbelief but we see Thomas's unbelief based on conditions that he's applying to this. He doesn't just doubt. He tells the other disciples that unless my conditions are met, that I will never believe. 
And this is us as well. It's not just that we have to see Jesus in the flesh. We aren't afforded that opportunity. But we have no problem putting conditions on our faith in Christ. We just say things differently. We say, when I get this dream job, then I will believe. Or when he heals this diagnosis, then I will believe. If I can ignore this area where God has spoken, Lord, then I'll love you. If I can marry this person, then I will love you. If I can fill in the blank, then I will love you. You wanna know the things that are idols in my life and in yours? It's the answer to the statement, if I, I will love you if. I will love you if you do this. Those are the conditions that you and I are placing our hope in instead of Christ. And we far too often expect Jesus to meet our conditions for our faith, right? Thomas clearly did. And Thomas is in this unbelief for a week, and we pick up in uh, verse 26 where John continues writing, a week later his disciples were indoors again. And Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So Jesus, again, similar to the first time he encounters the disciples, he appears and he stands in the middle of the room around his, or with his disciples around him. And in this moment, Jesus looks to Thomas and he knows his doubts and he speaks directly to them. He tells Thomas he is willing to provide the proof that he needs and at the same time, he rebukes Thomas to believe. And here we see something that is, is, I think is interesting that applies to us. And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, he talks about how in this moment it seems that Jesus puts Thomas into a double bind. If you're familiar with communication, it's generally not a great idea to put somebody in that position, right? So a double bind, if you aren't familiar with what it is, is where you find yourself in a situation where it seems as though there is no right answer. If you do this in marriage or in a relationship, it's a great way to regularly be frustrated with you and, or your spouse, right? So here's an example. You might say to my wife, hey babe, my friends just texted me to go out to dinner. Is it cool if I go out tonight rather than staying in? Or would you rather I just stay home, okay? There's no right answer. How is my wife supposed to win in this moment, right? If I go out, she can clearly say, you could tell that I didn't want you to go out. I thought you would know. I didn't know I needed to say that, right? And if I stay in and I'm miserable, she can look at me and go, why are you so miserable? I told you it was fine to go. It seems that Jesus is putting Thomas in this position, right? He's saying, here's all the proof that you need. And yet you need none of this proof to believe. But Jesus isn't putting Thomas into a double bind. Right? Jesus is the perfect son of God. There's no way he's going to communicate in a way that's unhelpful. He isn't trying to catch Thomas. John's not trying to, to paint Jesus in a bad light as he records the gospel. So there must be a couple things happening here. And the first is this. Jesus is assuring Thomas and us that we don't need to see the resurrected Jesus physically to believe. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in this room who's had the, who hasn't had the privilege uh, of the disciples to see Jesus in person in the flesh. But we can trust Jesus' words that we don't need to see him to believe. Jesus is telling that to Thomas. He's like, you don't need to see me physically to trust the words of your friends, the disciples who have seen me risen from the grave. There's no need for you and I to see him physically either. Jesus emphasizes this again when he shows up. He says, here's all the proof, but then he rebukes Thomas. He doesn't leave room for Thomas to doubt. Look at verse 27. He says, don't be faithless, but believe. Jesus doesn't allow Thomas to sit in his doubt, patting him on the head. It's okay that you didn't believe the the disciples. No, Jesus says, believe. The other disciples have told you that I've resurrected. Believe. And he's telling us that the word of others should be enough. And hopefully this gives us confidence as we share our faith with others. We should be able to point people to the hope that we have in Christ. But we can see here that physical proof, and these are Jesus' words, are not what people need. They're not necessary for our friends who don't yet believe the gospel to believe. We only need to give a testimony of who Christ is and what he's done for us and point them to his word for them to believe. So my encouragement that is keep sharing the gospel with others. Keep declaring the faith to those who don't believe. Trust the testimony of who Jesus is, what he's done for you and for me. Trust that because that's all that is needed for someone to believe. And even though Jesus is saying here that it's not okay for Thomas to doubt the testimony of the other disciples, that people don't need the the evidence or their conditions met for faith, Jesus turns around and gives him everything that he asks for. Again, this is where it seems that Jesus is putting Thomas into a double bind. But we have, again, we have to, uh, you know, come to the conclusion that Jesus is perfect. He's not communicating in a way that's unhelpful. And this leads us to the second reality of what's happening in this passage. Jesus is appearing to Thomas because Thomas needs to see the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. Okay, so Thomas missed the initial commissioning of the apostles. He wasn't there the first time. Jesus shows up and he gives them the Holy Spirit and he tells them to go out and share the gospel so sins will be forgiven. So Jesus tells Thomas, you don't need proof to believe. But if, Thomas, you are going to be an apostle, this proof seeing me in the flesh is necessary. All of the apostles had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. This is confirmed throughout scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 1, There's 11 apostles at this point. They need a 12th, and it was necessary for them as they work through that, uh, kind of work through that process to choose someone who has seen the resurrection. In fact, it's the main criteria in which they use to pick an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Paul lays out in order to make the Corinthians understand that he is, in fact, an apostle. He names all of the witnesses to the resurrection. And then in verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Right? So Paul wants the, the Corinthians to know that he is an apostle because he has seen the resurrected Christ. So what does this mean for us? Why do we care that Thomas is an apostle. What does this have to do with my Easter story? If he can believe and we can believe in Jesus without seeing him physically, why does Thomas being an apostle matter? Well, here's the thing. The 12 apostles got all of the evidence and proof that was needed when it came to the resurrection, when it came to Jesus' life and his teaching. But Jesus appearing to Thomas allows us to believe because our faith is laid on the foundation of Christ and the testimony of the apostles. 
Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. If you are a part of the church, it is because of the testimony of the apostles built on the foundation of Christ. The apostles, they walked with Jesus, they saw his death, they were witnesses to his resurrection, all of the post-resurrection meetings, everything that they needed for you to trust their testimony, they got. And as they went out, they preached the gospel of Christ, they wrote those things down oftentimes, and as they died off, their teachings ended up where? Right here, in the Bible. And this is why you and I believe the faith has been passed down. Listen to John's writings in the first of his epistles in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John writes, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And, our de- and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is trying to uh, tell us, we were witnesses to these things. We've seen them. Believe us. And Thomas is rebuked in this moment for not believing the other apostles. It's the royal treatment that they receive that should give us confidence to believe. I just want to ask, how are you doing with that? Do you believe the words of the apostles? And there's a really important reason why John is trying to make sure that we know that Thomas was a witness to the resurrection and that it's crucial to the understanding of the gospel. At the end of this passage in John John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This passage, this story about Thomas, most Bible scholars would agree that this is the climax of the entire Gospel of John. Like all of the book hinges on this one kind of primary story. So what is it that John is trying to tell us here? Why does John describe Thomas as one of the 12? And it's because he's trying to communicate something about the nature of the gospel. Think about this. What would Thomas have received had he not believed or been a a witness to the resurrection of Christ? He would have had all of the teachings of Jesus. Okay, John says in this passage, this is just some of the things that, has, that, that Jesus has done in his ministry before the disciples. So Thomas was there for the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Thomas is there for the teachings on how to pray. He's heard all of the parables. He's seen all the miracles. He knows that the wind and the waves obey the voice of Jesus. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He saw all of the healings. He knew about loving God and loving others. And if the only thing that Thomas needed to pass on was Jesus' teachings, then why does Jesus need to appear to Thomas? Can't we live a good life? Can't we follow the things that Jesus has commanded us to do without him appearing to the apostles? Well, John is trying to tell us that Jesus' teachings, they're important. Okay, don't hear me as saying that his teachings are not important. 
But the teachings of Jesus are important because what Jesus did is of first importance. It's the most important thing that he has done. Paul affirms this for us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. It's not a teaching. It's not a parable. It's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay? It's the gospel that is of first importance. And if you're like me and I think... It's easy to be honest about this, that we struggle with this. We struggle because we think, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, check. Let me move on to his teachings. How can I apply those to my life? How can I strive to be better? And we lean towards the teachings of Jesus rather than what he's done for us because we like to feel like we can force the change. Like we can be the change that's necessary to be good and righteous people. We struggle with the fact that Jesus died because we cannot change our hearts on our own. We like to think to ourselves that we can handle the teachings of Jesus because we take pride in what we can do. But the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, it's the exact opposite. It's not about what we can do. Romans 3 says that no one is righteous. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our sins. That's what we can do. We can provide to our salvation the sin that makes it necessary. But the gospel, the gospel's about God. The gospel is about what God has done for us and what we could never do for ourselves. And when we only agree that the resurrection is true but don't center our lives on the reality of that, we've gutted the gospel message completely. If we deny the resurrection of Christ by treating it as something that we move on from at once we believe it, it's no longer Christianity that we believe. This is the gospel. Paul writes in Romans, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the question that comes to mind is, yeah, but how can we know? Think back to Dean's uh, sermon from Easter at the Civic Center if you were there. There were 12 men kind of pictured behind him, was the apostles, one of them being Thomas. Do you really think that those 12 men who have seen the resurrected Savior were exiled and were martyred for their faith, died because of some teachings? I've never been that passionate about any moral teaching I've ever learned in my life. They were willing to die for this truth because they knew that trusting in Christ was the only hope that they had to pay for their sin. They didn't die because a teacher told them to turn the other cheek. They didn't die because Jesus instructed them to be generous. They didn't die because they were taught to love others. They died because the resurrection of Christ changes everything. The risen Christ rewrites our past because the sin that separates us from God is paid for. The risen Christ changes the present because we no longer have to strive to live up to a teaching on our own, but we do so with the power of the Holy Spirit conforming us and changing us into the image of Christ. The risen Christ changes our future because his resurrection is now ours. We know that one day we will receive a resurrected body, a world without sin, because Jesus is going to return to make all things new. This is why this story is the climax of John's gospel. 
Thomas needed this meeting with Jesus, not so Thomas could believe, but Thomas needed this meeting with Jesus to pass on the message of Christ crucified for sin and resurrected on the third day so that you and I may believe in the hope of the gospel. That is what they needed and that is what we needed to be saved from our sin. Let's look back to Thomas when Jesus appears in the room, right? Moments before Jesus was not there and now he is. And how does he respond to Thomas? And how does Thomas respond after one of the strongest statements of disbelief in the Bible? Thomas in verse 28 responds, my Lord and my God. Okay, this is one of the, following one of the strongest assertions of unbelief, he turns around a week later with one of the strongest confessions of faith in all of the scriptures, maybe only second to Peter's. And he speaks for all of us when he declares that if we're in Christ, right? We are all Christians because we have made a similar declaration that Jesus is Lord of all and that we submit to that lordship in our lives, that we submit to Jesus's authority, that we submit to his teachings, that we acknowledge that he is our God. This is not a generic confession that Jesus is a Lord and a God. And the reality is one day everyone will confess that truth. But Thomas makes a deeply personal confession, one that I would urge all of us to make. Not that he is a Lord and a God, but that we would make the confession with Thomas that he is our Lord and our God. Because we've all been Thomas. We like to believe in ourselves. We believe deep down that our way is the best way. Maybe we haven't declared it as strongly as Thomas, but deep down we can relate. We're angry, we're bitter, we're worried about finances or the things in the world, how some situation at home is going to be resolved. We doubt the resurrection. We doubt the testimony of Jesus and his word, the testimony of those who love him. We're all Thomas. But the good news in this is that Jesus is far more faithful than we are faithless. In all of Thomas's unbelief, Jesus was with him. That's true for us too. In our unbelief, in our shame, and in our sin, and in our guilt, Jesus sees us and he's with us. He knows the doubts that we have. He knows the dumb things we've said. He knows the conditions that we've put on faith. And even still, he's there. And just like Thomas, he's urging us to believe. He appeared to Thomas so that we would know how faithful he is. And you might feel right now that you are faithless. You might feel that Jesus could never be that faithful to you. On my best day, I'm not sure I'm very good at the being faithful to Jesus part. But here's the reality. Jesus calls those of us who have never seen but have believed blessed. Those are Jesus's words. And the other part of that beautiful truth is that Jesus supplies us with the faith that he commends us to have. So John is giving us this story so that Thomas's Easter story hopefully will be your Easter story and will hopefully be my Easter story. That we will see the incredible faithfulness of Jesus in the midst of our faithlessness. You want to know how faithful Jesus is to you? He was faithfully obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we realize that Jesus is faithful, we drop our conditions for belief. Jesus tells Thomas, he says, touch my wounds, right? He says, put, my, put your fingers in the holes in my hands. 
And most commentators agree Thomas doesn't do it. In the face of Christ's faithfulness, Thomas drops his conditions and he declares that Jesus is Lord. How about you and me? Will we believe the testimony of the apostles? Will we spend time in God's word and see his faithfulness delivered through those who saw him resurrected? Will we believe that Jesus is with us? Will we believe that in the midst of our unbelief that he has not cast us out, that he sees us, that he knows us, that he loves us? Will we see his faithfulness in his wounds? Will we look to his nail-pierced hands? Will we see the hole in his side to know how much he loved us? Will we drop our conditions for belief and believe that Christ is our Savior and it's not the things of this world? Will we confess like Thomas in the presence of Jesus' faithfulness, faithfulness, my Lord and my God? As we close our time this morning, we're going to do so by remembering and reflecting on the faithfulness of God by partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so if you're here this morning and you've trusted in Christ, I'd invite you to participate with us this morning. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, we're so glad that you're here. And I I hope that you will, maybe even now, that you would say, Jesus, I see your faithfulness. I'm going to drop my conditions. I believe your word. I believe like Thomas, and I confess that you are my Lord and my God. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to remind us it's obvious from this passage that God didn't need to send us another or a better teacher. We didn't need a teacher. We needed a Savior. One who was fully God, fully man, wounded and sacrificed for us. We needed one who could pay the penalty of our sins to reconcile us to God. And it is that one who we remember through the Lord's Supper, that Jesus died for us in our place and was resurrected on the third day. The bread that we eat during the Lord's Supper is symbolic of Christ's body, nailed to the tree, a sinless Savior in our place. Mark's Gospel records Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in this way, It says, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body, take and eat. The juice that we drink is symbolic of Christ's blood shed on the cross to wash us clean. Mark says, then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Take and drink. Let's pray together. Father, we are often like Thomas. Lord, we come to you with conditions for belief. We struggle to believe the testimony that you have spoken and the testimony that you have given to the apostles. So, Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be convicted. And, Lord, that we would drop the conditions for belief. Lord, that we would trust who you are and that the gospel, the message that you came and you lived a perfect life, that you died a death that we deserved, were placed into a tomb and three days later you rose from the dead proving that you were who you claimed to be 
defeated sin once and for all. Father, I pray that it's that truth that we would know and that truth that we would proclaim. And Father, that we would be able to stand before you, similar to Thomas, knowing how great a cost it was for us to be saved and to declare my Lord and my God. Father, may you give us the faith to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand and sing as we continue singing the good news of the gospel?